Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, International Editor at The Economist. Today we'll be asking forward-looking questions inspired by The World in 2019, The Economist's annual publication that considers the year ahead. Thinking about possible futures can help us understand the present and the various paths along which events might unfold in future. And in particular, we'll be discussing the rise of the heterosexual civil partnership. In France, the number of civil partnerships is now very, very close to the number of marriages. What will the future look like for CCTV surveillance? These companies, if they want, and if they have access to this kind of data, will be able to place you in any particular spot. And the growing business opportunities in North America in cannabis. It won't be until 2019 that lots of people will have full access to cannabis. But first, in 2019, more heterosexual couples will dress up in fairly nice clothes, travel to reasonably attractive venues, and make binding, but not terribly solemn, promises to each other. Then, instead of going on honeymoon, they'll return to work. Civil partnerships are far less glitzy or attention-grabbing than weddings, but they represent a colossal social change, the biggest alteration to Western marriage customs since the introduction of no-fault divorce. So to discuss all this, I'm joined by Joel Budd, who writes about social affairs for The Economist. Hello, Joel. Hello. To get us started, just describe what are civil partnerships and how did they come about? They've changed a bit over time. They were introduced when gay people started demanding the right to marry. Governments heard that and often sympathised with it, but got a lot of pushback, often from religious leaders, who said that this was undermining a long, sacred human institution. And so they created something that was similar to marriage and gave many of the rights of marriage but wasn't called marriage. They've gradually become more powerful. So in some countries, they're now almost indistinguishable from marriage, but vitally, they're not called marriage. And do most countries now have them, or how many are we talking about? Quite a few countries now have them, and the the situation has now become much more confusing because there there are many countries now that have extended full marriage to gay people. And so they're stuck in a peculiar situation of having sort of various kind of different classes of marriage, some of them for straight people, some of them sometimes more for gay people and so on. And how fast is it growing? I mean, obviously, you're projecting it to grow much faster in the future, but is it already a rapidly growing institution? So what has happened is that when civil partnerships were introduced, they were often restricted to gay people. Straight people could not enter civil partnerships. They had a choice of getting married or nothing. What happened over time is that many countries have extended those civil partnership rights to straight couples. And straight couples have become keener and keener on them. But is it replacing traditional marriage? Are there countries where it's actually almost as popular as the the real thing? Yes. So... There were several countries where civil partnerships were open to straight couples from the very beginning, including the Netherlands and France. And in both of those countries, to begin with, straight people didn't quite see the point. And over the years, in both of those countries, they've really become very popular. So in the Netherlands, roughly for every five couples who marry, one couple enters a civil partnership. And it's particularly working class areas where it's popular. So this isn't a kind of fancy upper middle class thing. 
And in France, the number of civil partnerships is, is now very, very close to the number of marriages. Thanks very much, Joel. And to look at how this might actually work in practice, I'm joined now by Martin Lote, chair of the Equal Civil Partnership campaign here in Britain. For you, as I understand it, this issue is personal. Could you describe how you got involved? Yes, I can, actually. I've been with my partner, Claire, for 27 years now. We've got two kids, a house and a dog. And we wanted to find a way of legally cementing our relationship, but we just thought the marriage wasn't quite right for us. We didn't really like the idea of having to exchange vows to validate uh, the strength of our relationship. We thought we'd prove that in practical terms, being together for more than a quarter of a century. Claire in particular doesn't like the idea of being labelled a wife. So we were kind of casting around a few years ago for something else we could do. And then we saw that this uh, couple, Charles Keaton and Rebecca Steinfeld, have been in the news quite a lot this year, had uh, got, got a situation where they were taking the government to court over the inequality that currently existed in law. So we got involved and supported them. And the case against the government here, broadly put, is that the current arrangements are discriminatory, that gay couples can have civil partnerships, mixed-sex couples can't. Yes, the case is, is, is discriminatory. And um, Charles and Rebecca, to their great credit, with uh, the support of the Equal Civil Partnerships campaign, which I got involved in and now became chair earlier in the year, have pushed the case both through the High Court um, and the Appeal Court and eventually to the Supreme Court in June 2018, where they won a 5-0 unanimous decision that uh, the way the law was constructed at the moment was in fact an inequality and out of keeping with uh, European human rights legislation. That in itself doesn't change the law because the courts don't actually make the law, they only interpret and administer it, as, as you know, in this country anyway. So it did put great pressure on the UK government to... Um, Get its, get its house in order, if you like. And so myself and my partner, many other partners, we have 170,000 supporters on Change.org, a very active Facebook group and website, Charles and Rebecca, of course. We all kind of bandied together and said, uh, we've got to get this changed. And we won the Supreme Court ruling. And then the government fell into line a bit later this year. That's a lot of people clearly behind you. Are they all doing it for the same reason? You say your objection was to making vows in front of the state. Others might be making vows in front of God, I suppose. What are other people doing That's a good point. I mean, there are various reasons. And we have quite a lot of supporters who are in their 50s, in their 60s, even in their 70s, been in long-term relationships. And I think there's this argument that you've, you've kind of got along and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And why should we need to sign up to a f formal state-sponsored marriage to validate the quality of our relationship? People feel unfairly treated and that pension rights are not transportable. Inheritance rights are null and void. If you're, if you're not in a civil partnership or a marriage, you're just cohabiting. There's the idea of common law marriage. You know, some people still believe that, but then they suddenly tumble and realize that they have no protection. Another group that really is quite prevalent are divorcees, where one or both of the couple have already been through marriage and for whatever reason it's failed. And they, they kind of say, look, I just don't really want to go through that again. What, why tempt fate? Why, why, why tread that path? I'm perfectly happy with my new partner. We've been together for so many years. We're not just uh, having a quick fling. But if one of us dies, you know, what's going to happen to the, the house, uh, inheritance rights, pension rights, and so on? We need a legal format. And from what you're saying, this being a podcast that's looking ahead, uh, 2019 could be your year, the end of your campaign. Well, hopefully, yeah, we, we might be able to literally wind down the Equal Civil Partnerships uh, campaign group in 2019. What happened in um, October was that um, Theresa May, no less, came out with a, with a nice announcement during the Conservative Party conference saying that the government would change the law. But what the government didn't do in that statement was actually give us a date. 
And so where we where we might get the date is with Tim Lawton MP and his uh, private members bill, which he got through the House of Commons. We hope it will be rubber stamped in the Lords in 2019. There will be a six month interregnum for the government to quite legitimately get all the paperwork done because it's going to be a big change. A lot of ministries will have to change their paperwork. So we hope by autumn 2019, myself, Claire and others will be able to have a legal civil partnership in this country. Congratulations in advance, Martin. Martin Lote, Chair of the Equal Civil Partnerships Campaign. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Coming up next, I'm joined by Hal Hodson to discuss the Orwellian future of CCTV, right after this. A ubiquitous feature of modern life is closed-circuit television. Public squares, street corners and transport are all adorned with ever-watching cameras in the name of tackling crime. Up until recently, the gargantuan volume of footage, most of it grainy and uneventful, went largely unwatched. But could this be about to change? Advances in machine learning are making face recognition much easier, and high-quality cameras are becoming much cheaper. So the ability to track us all automatically could soon be there. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. Hi, Simon. So, Hal, is the technology really there? I recall that study that was done recently of uh, a football match where it seemed that the cameras couldn't really recognise faces at all. No. And so the the situation is that the the technology is there, but it's scattered in bits and pieces in different bits of industry. Some law enforcement has some bits of it, but not others. That study that you're remembering was, it was a sort of observation done by an organisation called Big Brother Watch on the South Wales Police. And what they were doing was sitting inside this big police van with a big camera sticking out of the top and seeing how often the face recognition software that the police were running was actually apprehending someone that it was looking for. And they were looking for people with criminal records that they didn't know where they were and they wanted to make sure that they weren't going into the game. All quite worrying, even when it is people with criminal records. But what's going to happen over the next couple of years is that the police forces will start to get more advanced algorithms as they leak out of Silicon Valley that are better at face recognition. You know, Facebook is able to do face recognition on grainy photos of you. These companies, if they want, and if they have access to this kind of data, which is another question, whether they'll be able to see through the cameras at all, will be able to place you in any particular spot. The name of this organisation you mentioned hints, I guess, at the anxieties we all have about this Big Brother Watch. How justified do you think those concerns are? Are we all going to be watched everywhere with people able to track us just automatically? I think it depends on what society at large decides that it wants. The concern is that before face recognition sort of existed and started to become as good as it is now becoming, walking around in the sort of offline world, you were free from most of this stuff. Then we all put smartphones in our pockets with geolocation and we started to get a little bit more tracked. And now a lot of online platforms know where you are. And good face recognition is kind of in many ways the last straw of this because it means that these companies, if they want, and if they have access to this kind of data, which is another question, whether they'll be able to see through the cameras at all, will be able to place you in any particular spot. And while the location that comes 
of your phone is quite broad. It just says, you know, you're sort of roughly in this area. This would allow people to follow you through whatever shopping centre or know exactly where you are within a public space. On the positive side, I suppose there are benefits. I mean, I already log on to my laptop using a facial recognition thing. That will become more common as well, presumably. That'll become more common, that kind of easing your way through authentication procedures. There's also benefits like, you know, obviously tracking down people, criminals on the run. People talk about benefits like finding missing persons. But it's kind of one of those technologies where most of the benefits are benefits for the state. Take that example you use of finding missing persons. That's an intriguing one, isn't it? Is the suggestion really that somehow all the CCTV footage in the country could somehow be amalgamated and machine learning could pick out your face from it and you'd know where they were? So that is the, that's the ultimate sort of dystopian, if you like, vision. The current state of affairs, of course, is that CCTV systems are not connected. But then when you go to places like China, where there is a, a real boom in security cameras that come with machine vision chips built in in order to make the whole process much more efficient, those kinds of systems are more connected. The concern is, sure, for legitimate criminals, you want them to be caught. But then the question becomes much more important how you decide what a legitimate criminal is. And will there be any free unwatched spaces left for us? I mean, our homes are probably going to be one of the last frontiers. There are organizations, funnily enough, the block of flats I live in, it has a, a new poster up uh, in the last couple of days talking about things you can apply for the, the building owners to do. And it's like pot plants and stuff, that's all okay. And beautification and you know, a playground, you can apply for that. But uh, there's a specific ban on CCTV. No one is allowed to install CCTV anywhere, which is quite interesting. I think there is a sense that we want our homes and our most intimate spaces to be free of this stuff. But kind of as public spaces and streets become more commercialised, it's been impossible to say no to having closed-circuit television there too. But Big Brother's not quite watching you everywhere yet. Not yet, no. Hal Hodson, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Sam. And finally, we travel to North America, where more than 75 million adults can now legally buy cannabis. Legal sales of the once-illegal drug are forecast by some analysts to grow by 40% in 2019. And this provides a lot of opportunities for business to capitalise on the new laws. To discuss all this, I'm joined by Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Simon. So what can we expect in what I suppose one might call the cannabis space in 2019? 2019 is going to be really the year to watch because... Although the legalisation happened last year, the actual sort of business end of setting up the distribution networks and uh, setting up shops are sort of happening now. And it won't be until 2019 that lots of people will have full access to cannabis, legal cannabis, that is. Presumably, this is going to put pressure on governments outside places where it's already legal to follow suit or at the very least to downgrade cannabis as an illegal drug. What often happens is that, you know, people who were opposed were very, very opposed to the legalisation of cannabis. They've they've seen that, you know, the sky didn't fall in when medical cannabis was legalised. Quite the contrary, it had a lot of benefits. In fact, 
states that have legalized medicinal use of cannabis have got a lower rates of opioid deaths, for example, because people are using them for chronic pain. And so, yes, there's a lot of pressure to, first of all, to allow medical use from any kind of legalization because there are real medical benefits. And then kind of beyond that, there is also often a, a pressure for sort of full adult use. But usually it comes from the sort of medical use first. And how are people going to be consuming cannabis? Because presumably we'll see innovation there. Will people still be rolling their own cannabis cigarettes? Will they be buying industrial packs of cannabis joints? Will they be drinking cannabis beer, sucking cannabis peppermints? This is the most fascinating aspect of this story to me is just the sort of array of products that are coming out. And of course, people are going to be smoking joints in the same way that they used to. But one of the interesting elements to this is that, you know, millennials don't really want to smoke as much as perhaps our generation at Simon. And so, um, yeah, they may be vaping uh, cannabis fluid, but equally there's been this sort of flourishing growth of edibles. The problem with eating cannabis is that it takes a long time to sort of kick in. And so when you eat it, it's very slow to come on and you're like, have I eaten enough? And you eat some more. And the next thing you know, you're under the table for the next eight hours. And so that kind of profile has led a couple of companies to sort of develop technology to encapsulate the cannabis. And so you get, first of all, you get no flavor, which is great because you don't really want to taste cannabis. It doesn't taste very nice. And also so that it releases very quickly and then in the sort of profile of the hit you get is much more like alcohol. It comes on quite quickly. So that's all happening. And then on top of that, you've got all sorts of exciting products like, you know, essential lubricants and sprays and I mean, all sorts of things. You name it, somebody's thought of it. There's beer, there's wine. Sensual lubricants. I think we've reached our climax, Natasha, <laughs> and I have no more questions to ask. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>